If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Carrie, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You got the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome to episode 136 of Classic Conversations, the classicest conversations in all of the podcast universe. (laughs) I wrote it down. I read it. It must be true. I've got an amazing guest for you today. Oh, yes, I do. Sue Kalinske is here. That's right. Three-time Emmy nominated producer, TV writer, comedian. If you love the Osbournes, then you love Sue Kalinske. If you love Newlyweds, then you love Sue Kalinske. If you love the first season of Sex in the City, then you love Sue Kalinske. Sue Kalinske has done it all. We dive into her comedy career. That time she was on Star Search. And so much more. Oh, you're going to love this. You're going to love this conversation. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. I hope all you Brady Bunch fans did not miss my interview from last week. Lloyd J. Schwartz. Oh, we talked Brady. We talked Brady Bunch like no one else has ever talked Brady Bunch in the world. That's right. I wrote that down. I read it. It's true. Check out my conversation with Lloyd J. Schwartz. He's amazing. Sherwood Schwartz's son. But he's done so much so much and brought so much joy to the world. Brady Bunch reuniting Gilligan's Island, getting them off that island. Of course, they ended up back on the island, but let's not, let's not go there. Also, hope you're enjoying those bonus episodes from the Crossing the Streams live show. Crossing the Streams, of course, we do every Wednesday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern time on the YouTube. Follow us there and watch live every Wednesday or just sit back if you don't have time for that. And uh, occasionally we'll send a bonus episode into this podcast feed right into your ears because I like to make everything as easy as possible for you. TV binge watching suggestions await you. All right, I got a real special episode coming up on Thursday. I know a little bit ago, I let you know that I was at the Motor City Comic Con for the Christopher Reeve Legacy Reunion, and I got to interview Mariel Hemingway, Jack O'Halloran, Nan, Sarah Douglas, Ursa, Mark McClure, Jimmy Olsen, Aaron Smolinski, Baby Clark Kent, and then Robert Verdetti and Wilfredo Torres, the writer and artist of Superman 78 comic book. Well, guess what? This Thursday, we got a super man episode coming short interviews with all those folks and i do have a old jeff east interview that i never aired he was young clark kent in superman and so he's going to talk all about that as well we're going to finally air that so that's exciting so we got a whole superman episode coming up next week so if your socks are on the other side of the room now because i just knocked them off go get your socks Keep your feet warm. That's important. And get ready. That's coming Thursday. I got amazing Sue Kalinsky coming up in just a few, but now you got something extra, extra to be so excited about. I do want to thank everyone who supports our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. I am fortunate to have as many fans as I do, all of you out there hearing this right now. Thank you. So I take great joy in being able to kind of introduce you to something that my friend is doing, Tony Berardo. You're like, Tony, you mean frequent guest on Crossing the Streams? Yes, that Tony. He has this cool new company that he's doing with his wife. It's called Meet Cute. Meet Cute is like that first cute encounter in a movie or TV show. He sends you a box, a handmade box with really cool items in it that he got from local businesses all around the world. And he sends it to you and you and your partner can have a really unique date night. How cool is that? Go to meetcute.com or just DM me on Instagram at Jeff DeWashington Show, hashtag meetcute. Send you, I'll DM you the URL. But check that out. It's really, really cool. It's a monthly subscription. So if you're like, oh, I already get fruit monthly or wine. Well, now you can get stuff for a great themed date night. How cool is that? I know. It's only 30 bucks worth a million dollars more than that. Check it out. Tony did not pay me to say that. That is not a paid ad. That's just from my heart. 
Speaking of from my heart, I'm excited to share my interview with Sue Kalinske with you. You're about to learn about her three decades in comedy, her amazing work on reality shows, when reality shows were real, like the Osbournes. And you're going to walk away going, Vaughn Meter, I got to look that guy up. Why? I'm not going to tell you. You got to listen. And that's coming up right now. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, TV writer, three-time Emmy-nominated producer, sports blogger, co-host of Culture Pop Podcast, comedian, and are you still a comedian? I don't do stand-up anymore, no. Former stand-up comedian, even <laughs> though there's really no such thing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Sue Kalinske. Hi, Sue. Hi, Jeff. It's great to finally meet you face-to-face. Yes, this is so nice. It's uh, thank you for uh, doing my little podcast with me. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, well, I listened to your podcast and it was a lot of fun. And I was like, hey, how do I get me on that? Yeah, that's uh, it is. It's a, it's a hoot. I was listening to your podcast as well. You're a hoot. Now we're podcast friends as well. So this is this is awesome. But let's not talk shop. We'll talk shop another time. We'll do that. <laughs> You've got a fascinating career. I'm excited to talk to you about it. Uh, but I know you said you're not a, a stand-up comedian anymore, but I know that's your roots are in stand-up. Yes. So how did the bug bite you? How did you kind of get into stand-up comedy? My parents bought the first family album. That was Vaughn Meter, who did John Kennedy. Did, do you, did you know of that? I'm, did, I'm much older I, than you, I think. I, you know, I've heard you talk about him. So I did a little research on him. So uh, Mm -hmm. we can do a little (laughs) mini report on him. So I'm familiar, but go ahead, go ahead with your story and then we can. So I'm, I'm the youngest of five. And one of my brothers from listening to the record started doing an impression of John Kennedy, which opted me to do an impression of John Kennedy. So at like five, I started to do impressions. And then as I got a little bit older, I kind of had a whole kind of corral of people that I did. And because my voice is deep, I only did men. So I did like John Wayne and, you know, James Cagney. And then I, you know, do Nixon. And then I became a really big fan of impressionists like Frank Gorshin was my all time favorite. And then, you know, Rich Little and David Fry. I started to do it the first time I ever did it publicly, um, you know, because I used to, you know, entertain the family and relatives would come over and it's like, oh, look, Sue, you know, she could do John Wayne. And I'd be like, eh, nah, I don't want to do it. And they were like, oh, I, I bet you can't do it. You know, trying to, you know, use reverse psychology on me to get me to do my show in the living room. Sure. And then I became friendly with a group of um, actors Someone told me about this. um, Someone was doing like an even like a variety show. And they said, if you anything that you are talented in, you can, you know, audition and see if you can get a spot on it. So just a potpourri of singers, dancers, whatever. I did my impressions and it went over really well. And then it's kind of a tangent here. But my my godmother, I, I was living in New York. I was living in Long Island where I grew up. And my aunt was living in Brooklyn. And her neighbor was a wardrobe mistress for uh, films. And she found out that I did impressions. She said, oh, you should go to this. Uh, there's a club in New York City called The Improvisation. You should go there. It's just, it's all comedians. So I did a little research. I, I was around 18 at the time. And I went into the city and you had, at the time you had to get there early in the day and you, you waited online and um, you had to pick a number from a hat. And that number dictated what time of the evening they would sprinkle on the auditioners during the regular show. And I got a pretty early number, did great, passed, got invited back and had no idea the inner workings of of what passing meant or I thought that every time you went back on stage, you had to do something different. I didn't know that you can do the same thing. So I wrote a completely different set, didn't do as well, never got spots, and then and, and then just stopped doing it and thought, you know, I'll, I'll see what happens when I get older. Maybe I need to like really rethink this. A couple of years later, I auditioned at Catch a Rising Star, which was the other premier club in the city. Passed there. Never really got spots. I, I was what they would call, you do, you did, or I don't know if you still do stand up, but we were considered late night comics, which meant that we went on 
anywhere from like one to three o'clock in the morning when hardly anybody was there. But it was a real test of your commitment to being a comedian. And if you could tough that out and you can go on in front of three people and not get disenchanted and just still believe in yourself, then it was going to pay off. And that's basically what happened. The comic strip soon opened. That was the third club. And when I first started, Dennis Miller was a late night guy. I don't think he lived in New York. He used to come in from Pittsburgh. So it was just a whole, you know, we were we were the late night comics and developed a, a camaraderie. And then I, I ended up prematurely moving out to L.A., which was prompted by a horrible breakup. I just did not want to be in the city anymore. Went out to L.A., auditioned at the comedy store, passed at the comedy store, passed at the improv out there. Stayed out there for, I don't know, maybe like four years. Got some spots, but really, it, it didn't really catapult my career. And because the competition in LA was much, it was just, it was stronger than it was in New York. And I thought, you know, I, I need to get stage time. I started getting um, a couple of gigs here and there. I, I was actually working as a legal secretary and my boss was a really, really cool guy. And he was very supportive of me wanting to pursue my career. The first gig I got was at a place in Sacramento, Laughs, Laughs Unlimited. I was the opening act and uh, he let me take off. He said, I will always let you take off of work if you could fill your seat. And I, I was a legal secretary. I mean, I was... I never, I knew nothing about law. I just, you know, answered phones, typed letters, and my cousin would come and fill in for me. Like one of my friends came in and filled in for me. And then I started to get gigs and I finally was able to quit. Uh, I moved back to New York. I got a lot of college gigs and that kind of um, heightened my, my bank account. And then I just stayed in New York for, uh, for a pretty long time and really, really got to work on my craft. I stopped doing the impressions and just started just talking about my life and whatever. Did it for probably close to 30 years. I did stand up. Amazing. It, it's interesting how they kind of bottled you as a late night comic. I think in, in Michigan, I was considered the uh, mom's favorite comic. <laughs> What's that about? All the other comedians would go, you're my mom's favorite. Because I, I was always older than everyone. So I would. <laughs> <laughs> that was my demo. And, and how, did, how, did you, how did you start? That's a great question. I was always really funny at work. And I would be funny at like the all hands meetings, you know, those big staff mm -hmm. calls. And I would just get up. It started where like I was working in this one particular sales company, but I was really out of Chicago, but I'm in in Michigan. So I had a little more leeway with what I could get away with because these people weren't my direct bosses. So I do basically routines when I would do my presentations. I was a hoot. And then I had a web development company in the late 90s here in Michigan. And Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle was one of our very first websites that we did. And I had remembered that on their website, they had comedy classes. And so everyone's like, you totally need to do that. And so I was like, all right. I never had the guts to like just walk in one day and walk on stage, right? But so I took this writing class. I, know, I think it was like a couple months. Then you do like the seven mm -hmm. minutes. And I just, that was 20 years ago. I just never stopped. It was just so much fun. So. Wow, seven <laughs> minutes. I mean, that's that's a long time. I think I think the auditions in New York were like five minutes. Yeah, Michigan where they they yeah, right? That's what I always heard. Like LA, New York, like three minutes, yeah. five minutes. Like we were blessed with seven here in Michigan. Probably not as many comics. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you think of it, you know, I did Star Search early on in my career, the first rendition of it with Ed McMahon. The sets were two minutes. That's incredible. So so tell me about that, because you won. At least your first I did. Round I won, won, right? Or at least a couple of rounds. I went, I actually got into the semifinals, but I was lucky because I did the first show of the season and I went up against a comedian named John Mulrooney. Do you know who John is? I looked him up. He's from Brooklyn, like yes. you are. He was a very, very popular New York comedian, kind of a blue collar guy. He was touted to win the whole thing. And his managers were. Rick Messina, who has since become, you know, huge manager, you manage, you know, Drew Carey, and he still manages uh, Tim Allen. But at the time, he had just started to cultivate his clientele. And then a guy named Bill Boggs, I don't know if you know Bill Boggs, he was a local, he had a local talk show, like daytime talk show in New York. And there was, and there was another guy, uh, Rich Baker. So the three of them came to the show. The thing was, is that we had an audition just to kind of get the semantics of the flow of the show and all the different acts from the dancers to the singers to the bands. 
and the comics had to show up in the afternoon and run through their performance. So John decided that he wasn't going to come to the rehearsal. Uh, I don't know whether he thought he was too big to, to do it. He thought it wasn't important. Well, it turned out that we had similar material about working out and I went first. So that really screwed him up because my jokes were, were funny. They were really, really good. And I wouldn't say that his jokes were bad. It's just that they heard, they heard the topic already. But I remember being in the green room and I just came by myself. I didn't have a posse. You know, I was like a young comedian. So he comes in with his management team. They're like trying to psych me out in the green room. And like, I knew Rick Messina. Rick Messina was a bartender at a comedy club in Long Island. So I knew Rick forever. And we were very friendly. So it was like, what are you guys trying to do? You kind of shake me down here and try to like intimidate me. So I beat him the first episode. And I, I had like three and three and three and three uh, points seven. So three and, and, and what is it? Like I had almost four stars. I was one quarter short of four stars. So I won. And then I won the second time. And then the third time I tied, I lost to the audience. They voted for the other guy. That's and what I was upset about was that any of the judges, if they knew you, they had to excuse themselves from being a judge. And one of the judges did know me. He wasn't my agent, but he worked at an agency that later be he later became my agent, but we were just friends. But he knew me. So he excused himself. And if he didn't excuse himself, that one vote from that judge, I would have won and it never would have went to the audience. But because my scores were so high, it, it was a it was kind of an, an uh, kind of an outlier season. A lot of comedians didn't score very high and a lot. No one went on like a major run. So because my scores were high, I got into the semifinals. That's awesome. But they should have if, if there's a conflict of interest, they should just get a new judge. Yes. So they did get in. They did get it. I think they did. They had maybe backup judges, so they did get a new judge. And I guess that judge didn't didn't obviously didn't vote for me. But the thing is, this is the kicker. When it came to the semifinals, I went up against a guy named Mark McCullum. I don't know if you remember him, but he was a uh, he did cartoon voices and played guitar as most conventional standups frowned upon kind of a prop guy. So he beat me. But I found out after my set that one of the agents from his agency was a judge. And that was all judging that that had nothing to do with the with the audience. This was the judges made the decision. And he beat me. I didn't cause a stink about it. But I just thought, well, that's unfair. I mean, they kicked out the guy who knew me, who wasn't even my agent. And now someone from his agency is a judge and they get to stay. That is ridiculous. We should we're going to post these people's names online later. And uh, is the statute <laughs> is the statute up, Jeff? I, I think you've got one more year. We got one year to make a difference here, folks. <laughs> we're going to ruin some lives. Hashtag Avenge Sue. Well, well, it's also because it was it was the money thing, too, because and of course, my year in prior years, you got a thousand dollars if you were on the show and you got an, an additional thousand if you won my year, you just got a thousand dollars for being on the show. You didn't get the extra cash. So if I would have beat this guy, I mean, I could have gotten into the finals. He won a hundred thousand dollars. This guy, he he won the whole thing that year. That would have been nice. I we're, we're going to have to let's ruin his life. <laughs> Subtly. <laughs> Nobody hurts Sue. It's all right. So that, that is an awesome story. I, you know, it was interesting because I, I'd heard you talk about this Vaughn meter. I didn't know who he was, but it's always interesting to me. Like the one thing that kind of, you can say like, oh, this one thing happened and then it inspired so much. And so I, I did a little research on this because I was just kind of fascinated. Mm -hmm. So by the time I figured out how to spell <laughs> his name, it became very easy to do the research. <laughs> so it, interestingly enough, this album was rejected by everyone when they were trying to make it because they didn't want to upset the White House. And then this small company called Candace, I believe, if I can read my handwriting, they decided they would produce it. It went on to win Album of the Year and became the biggest selling album of like all time at that time. Fastest selling record of all time with 6.5 million albums. It's like an insane story. Wow, see, I didn't, I, I didn't know that. But um, who was um, I'm trying I, I'm blanking on the name of one of the head writers. He was like a major comedy writer. He went on to write on Get Smart. Uh, we have to look it up because I can't believe I'm, I'm blanking on his name. He was in Defending Your Life. Buck Henry. Yes, Buck Henry. So he was one of the writers on, on the show. And 
ironically, this is crazy. My parents were friends with a stand-up comedian when I was growing up. His name was Mac Robbins. He was not very well known. He had a bit part in Funny People. He played the old timer comedian. Not Funny People. Oh God, the mo- <laughs> here we go again. It was the movie with um with Tom Hanks and um, Sally Field punchline. So he had a he he played the old timer comic in that. So when I was growing up. He was like my idol because he was a stand-up comedian and he was kind of like a, he was a Borscht Belt comedian who wasn't like, you know, he was like the JV part, you know, he wasn't, you know, Pat, Pat Henry and, and Shecky Green, but he performed with all those guys and he knew Vaughn Meter. So I got to, I didn't get to meet Vaughn Meter, but I got his autograph and I had it for the longest time and I had it in, um, I had it in like a pants pocket or something and put my clothes in the lawn. My mother washed it and completely ruined it. Oh, no. <laughs> but this poor guy, I mean, did you? I don't know how much you've read about him. They kind of talked about it a bit in uh, The Marvelous, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel because when Kennedy was assassinated and he was told about it, he got a phone call about it. He thought people were kind of screwing with him because that was his career. That's all he did. Right, right. And he never he never bounced back from that. I think he became like a raging alcoholic and it was very, very sad. But he his impression of him was I mean it was brilliant. Right. I, I read that near um he sold the movie rights and that Bill Hader at one time was ported to play him. And then there was one other Oh, one other kind of thing of note, which was interesting, is that if you go online and you watch his appearance, what they say is the voice and gestures seem broad and obvious. But that's because he set the standard. Like everything we've seen since is based on Vaughn Meter's impression of John F. Mm -hmm. Kennedy. And you're right, when when Kennedy died, so did his career. The alliteration of that works great. But like it was (laughs) sad. I did see that he went on to star in Linda Lovelace for president. 1975, maybe not star. <laughs> he had a, a guest appearance, but so did Mickey Dolan's of the monkeys. So I'm not sure that's the way he wanted to end. But the good news is he inspired little Sue Polinsky <laughs> to grow. <laughs> it's just funny. It's just amazing. I wonder, I wonder if other people, has anyone ever else told you, oh yeah, I love that. That, that inspired me too. Oh, like something that inspired them? Oh no, that, that particular album, the first family album. Um, well, you know, a while ago on Facebook, somebody had posted, you know, what are your favorite comedy albums? And obviously that was one of mine. And a lot of other comedians had posted that. It was that and it was um, Alan Sherman who did uh, Hello Mother, Hello Fada. It was all about uh, that right. summer camp. And I, I, I went to sleepaway camp for like six summers. So that really resonated with me. Flip Wilson, um, because he was one of the people that I impersonated. Trying to think what other comedy albums, you know, we didn't, I didn't grow up with like Bill Cosby wasn't one of the top, although he was, you know, big comic back then, like Richard Pryor. My parents would never have a Richard Pryor album in the house. Um, Oh, Don Rickles. Hello, dummy. That. And, you know, who really influenced me the most was Alan King. I used to watch Alan King on Ed Sullivan show as a kid. And, you know, he was Jewish. He was, I think he lived in Long, I'm almost positive he lived in Long Island. Uh, where I grew up, everything he talked about was so relatable, just all the Jewish, the Jewishness of life and the complaining and the sitting by, you know, there's always a draft and, you know, just sending back food. And is that what you're wearing? And, you know, just all the things that I heard my entire upbringing. And that's what really, really made me want to be a comedian. I knew you were Jewish when you said you went to summer camp for six summers. <laughs> Only Jews understand that, right? Non-Jewish people. You mean you went away for a weekend? No, two months. What? <laughs> two months. And, you know, I'm the youngest of my family of five. So I didn't go to camp with my oldest brother, who's 11 years older than me. But I went with my two brothers and my sister. And the first year I went to camp, I was nine years old. My mother sent me away for two months at nine. So. I could only imagine that five kids was so overwhelming to her that the opportunity to not have any of her children for two months out of the year, it was like, sign me up. I don't care how much it is. That's how we were. Love the kids. But to get that like two months where all of a sudden during the summer where you're like, oh, it's like we're first married again. And we're like before kids, we can do anything we want. And then we'd have friends that would have multiple kids like, well, you know, Sally's friends go first session and 
And, uh, you know, Billy's friends go second session. So they go different sessions. That way we get time with one of them. But I'm like, what? No, <laughs> that just says you're paying the same amount of money to get no time to yourself. That, no time. No time. That's insane. And, and <laughs> the thing is, is that the camp that I went to was really a meatballs kind of camp, but it was a meatballs kind of camp where people were doing drugs. Like there was one of the counselors, he got kicked out of the camp because they found drugs in the bunk. My last year of camp, I only went half summer. And this is a testament to how cool my mom was. A friend of mine had, at the time, you were able to send in to win to like a radio station. You were able to send in postcards to win tickets to concerts. And he filled out like, I don't know how many, but probably a hundred or more to win tickets to see the Stones at Madison Square Garden. It was 1972. And Stevie Wonder was on the bill. Who else was on the bill? What a surprise that I'm forgetting. There's a couple of other like big names that were on the bill, but Stevie Wonder was one of them. It was one of the months of camp. It was in July. And I said to my mother, you don't understand. I can't go to camp in July. I have to see this concert. I was 15 and she saw how important it was for me. So she allowed me to to go just in August. And at 15, I took a friend of mine the second month. I said, you should come to camp with me. Someone I had grown up with. I brought pot with me to camp at 15. <laughs> I guess there was probably, there was a rat in the bunk because I had it like in my trunk and it was hidden and someone told on me and and the one of the directors, there were two directors of the camp. Now he had known me since I was nine years old. Not only did he know me, he knew my whole family, my cousins went. So he found out that I brought pot to camp and he never, ever told my parents. He just said to me, I want you to throw it out. And, and that was it. And he never brought it up again. He could have got me in so much trouble, but he really, he loved me and he loved my family. And he said, I, I, I'm not going to do that to you, but just get rid of it. That is very nice of him. Very. So nice. here, my, here, my parents wow. were sending me to a camp where it was totally insane. I mean, it was, it really was meatballs. My sister, who's three years older than me, she and her girlfriends stole all of the boys camp, the the older boys camp, BVDs, white BVDs and dyed them pink. And we had what they call lineup, you know, for meals. So in the morning you lined up before breakfast, they put it on the flagpole. And then to get the women back, they went into their bunks and stole all their bras and put those on the flagpole. So that was the kind of crazy camp that I went to. And it was the greatest Greatest thing I ever did in my life was go to summer camp. Yeah, camp camp is is the greatest. Did you go? Yes, I I went. I went more later during high school, and then I was a counselor and and supervised at camp as well. So I spent many a summer at camp. It was a good time. I remember my counselor being hauled out because they fired him because he was drinking or something. <laughs> They do their best to contain everything, but it's like, uh, you know, what can you do? Like when you put like kids that age uh, yeah. together. You, you can't you can't keep your eyes on on everybody. And, you know, we we snuck out, you know, as as, you know, preteens, we would sneak out. And there was a uh, like a, a local store down the block that sold these amazing cookies that were synonymous for upstate New York. And maybe they're more national now, but they were called Fryhofer's chocolate chip cookies. And you can only get them in upstate New York. And they were, it was like a drug. They were like the greatest cookies in the world. Sounds delish. So we used to sneak out and go to that store. And we, you know, it was, look, you know, we were away from our parents. So we did anything we could to get away with stuff. I mean, that was the whole point of camp. I would challenge the the cookie. My grandma would send me cookies. They were the best cookies. Okay. All right. My favorite thing in Friends, you ever watch Friends? Like when uh, Phoebe's like, I had the greatest recipe and it turns out it's just a Toll House recipe <laughs> on the back of the... <laughs> this is the best, the best ever. So, <laughs> oh man. So from camp and doing stand-up, like where did you where did you transition from being a stand-up to writing on like Sex in the City and all that, which is my wife's favorite show uh, ever, by the way. So I made a conscious decision to kind of put stand up on the back burner when I realized that no one was going to create a show about Sue Kalinske. They just weren't. I didn't have the kind of act that really lent itself to that. So 
I saw my future as a stand-up the rest of my life, being on the road. And like, look, I, I had such a great stand-up career. I did USO shows for many years. I traveled all over the world. I worked with Bob Hope, I, not, not USO, but I worked with Bob Hope. I worked with Milton Berle. I, I did a week with Rosemary Clooney. I mean, I hung out with all these like iconic acts and it was amazing, but I just did not want to have a life on the road. I just, I was in a long relationship with somebody. So I had a, a, a good friend who I knew from New York. She was a dancer and then she became an actress and she was a waitress at a comedy club in New York. And I, I never really, I never hung out with her outside the club, but whenever I was booked at the club, we cultivated this really fun friendship. And then she moved to LA before I did. And then when I moved out, I found out that she was living out here and we totally connected. And she was, uh, she had started to, uh, she was a writer, kind of chip off the old block. Her father was a writer. So um, she said, you want to um, try to write a spec script and see if we can get a job. So we wrote our first one, we wrote a Ellen and then we wrote a Mad About You. The first, the first Ellen? The first Ellen. Okay. And then we wrote a Mad About You and we ended up getting an agent right away. We signed with CAA actually right away. And then we wrote a Larry Sanders. And that was probably, I mean, I, the, the other two scripts I thought were great, but the Larry Sanders, I think really kind of put us in a whole other league. And we got a job on a show called Brotherly Love with the Lawrence Brothers. Whoa. <laughs> exactly. And it was really cool because the guys that ran the show were a comedy team back in the day. They were the first comedians that I met online at the improv. And their names were, it was Schmock and Valley. And then they became the Funny Boys. And they had co-created the show. They were um, big Wit Thomas, the producers Wit Thomas. They were big Wit Thomas writers. They wrote on Golden Girls and Blossom. And so they loved our script. They knew me forever. So we got a job writing on that. And it was the second season. It started on NBC and then NBC dropped the show and we got on the show when it was on the WB and then it got canceled. And we were like, oh, okay, what are we going to do? We got to like, you know, we got to write more spec scripts, whatever. And then we got wind. We actually created a show that had some similarity to Sex in the City but it was, it was two women. And, you know, she grew up in Manhattan. I grew up in Long Island, lived in Manhattan. So our sensibilities was, you know, very New York. And we gotten, the two of us got invited to a taping of a dice clay pilot. And while we were there, we just bonded with a, a, a woman writer and they were saying to us, Oh, so what are you doing? What are you guys writing? What, you know, what are you working on? And we told her that we had come up with this idea and she said, Oh God, I hate to tell you this, but you know, there's a show uh, very similar. That's uh, that just got picked up for HBO. I looked at my partner and I said, well, I guess we have to get a job on it. Michael Patrick King was one of the co was one of the executive producers and Michael and I, we came up together. We were very good friends. I, have to say that I had to co-sign a credit card for him when he was a struggling artist in New York, living in a schlocky basement apartment on the Upper West Side. So he owes you. He owes you. He owes point. me. We couldn't get a meeting. They basically said they weren't seeing anybody. So, you know, we were like hounding our agents. We were at CAA. We're like, we're CAA clients. What do you mean you can't get us a meeting? And they were like, they're just not seeing anybody. You know, they're they're not hiring anybody. They're going to do the show themselves. And I'm like, oh, God, this is ridiculous. Two New Yorkers, one who's a stand-up comedian, you know, how could you not even meet with us? And Michael. So I didn't I didn't call Michael, but I called up someone that I knew at HBO, Carolyn Strauss, who was a, a big shot at, at HBO. And I, I called her up and I said, Carolyn, you know, because she knew me. She knew my whole stand up career. I said, Carolyn, you got to get us a meeting. So we finally get a meeting and we have a great, great meeting with them. And ha I do think it was our Larry Sanders that they really sparked to. But I, the reason why I think we we actually sealed the deal was that after the meeting, they walked us to the door and Michael just randomly said, what do you what do you think about anal sex? And I said, um, only if quaaludes are involved. And he laughed. And we left. And the next day, we found out we got the job. All right. Well, there's plus one for uh, anal sex. The, there um, you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan of the show, not the renewal one, but I, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I've watched I've watched it probably a million times because my wife was obsessed with Sex in the City. We had the whole DVDs when that was a thing when you would buy mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. She was obsessed with trivia. So I've seen every episode probably a million times. I worked with on stand-up Craig Gass, the overeater that overate her. Uh-huh. Richie uh-huh. Byrne. <laughs> like some people. Everything we went once to uh New York, my wife and I, and we ate everywhere that they ate on Sex in the City. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's great. It was. It was I, I actually did that with the show The Affair. Oh, I went okay. out to uh Montauk. And a friend of mine has a house out in East Hampton and we went to the lobster roll. We went to all the plate when then, you know, the windmill, the library. Yeah, it was fun. Why Game did they course. change season one to season two or at least the talking to the camera thing? And like the early season was much different. Oh, in like, Sex in the City? Yeah, in Sex in the City. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I only wrote on it the first season. My partner and I split up and then I, I, you know, you know, writing a spec script by myself. And I was actually really pissed at her that she wanted to break up the team. And it was really, really hard for me. She just wanted to write by herself. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. And then I, I got a, I got a radio gig in New York. So I, I took a little break from writing TV, went to New York with my now podcast, my podcast partner, Steve Mason, Steve Mason. I used to do a lot of, um, I golf. So I used to do a lot of celebrity golf events. And, and especially, I mean, I'm not a great golfer, but at the time I was not really good at all, but I, I could play. So Richard Karn from Home Improvement, he started this um, charity event. It was to raise money for, for cancer, breast cancer. The events were in uh, Seattle. So I did like, I don't know, maybe it was like four years of it. And one of the years, and, and it was like Samuel Jackson, Bill Gates, all these like big athletes, Josh Charles. I mean, you, Dennis Haysbert, all these big, big acts came. So we all hung out. I mean, I was like hanging out with Samuel Jackson. It was like a blast. That is awesome. And one year, Steve was doing, he was doing a radio show with his now partner. This was in the beginning years of him doing his show. He ended up doing it remotely in Seattle. What they included a baseball aspect at along with the golf. So it became a weekend event, became a week event. Kathy Ladman, comedian Kathy Ladman, she's a good friend of mine. So Kathy and I got invited to go into the booth with Mark Harmon and Steve, who I'd never met, and do color commentary on the game. That's awesome. Steve and I just hit it off famously. And that led to me coming on his show in LA. And then I had a segment on Fridays called Crazy Sue. And it was this crazy trivia thing that I, that I would do. And then he got this New York gig to host on WNEW. I like this iconic radio station that I grew up listening to. And he called me up and he said, do you want to um, come on the show? Do you want to be my partner? And I didn't have to audition. I just went to New York and they just booked me sight unseen. But I ended up getting a, a gig at Caroline's. I was still doing standup at the time because I never I never completely stopped doing standup, even during a lot of my writing years. Um, I still kept a foot in the standup door. So I was at Caroline's and all the top people from the station who hired me came to see me um, like, let's see what we hired. you know. And it was magical. It was a great, great night. I did that with Steve for like a year and a half. That sounds so much fun. That would be, I think, talk soup type thing would be number one. And then uh, doing some kind of radio thing would be a really cool job. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's cool because, you know, as a standup and, you know, I mean, it was it was kind of an extension of being a standup without actually having to look at the audience. So it was live. We had people that called in. It was freeing in that. And it's such a comic thing. You got that one person who's not laughing and looking at you and it's like, oh God, seriously? And you just focus on that. Everybody else is laughing, but that one person is just a thorn in your side. So you didn't have that with with radio. You just did what you did. You know, you invited on whoever you wanted to invite on. We had comics on every Friday and we had great guests. I mean, it was, we had like Terry Gillespie, um, uh, we had... uh, Oh, Terry Gillespie, Terry Gilliam from um, Monty Python. Eric Idle came on. We had, you know, a lot of authors. We had Joe Bonanno Jr., mob guy. He came on. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. Yeah, it was really, really yeah, cool. It, sound, it sounds fun. Yeah, it was fun. You casually mentioned Milton Berle, Bob Hope earlier. <laughs> so you were on Bob Hope's Young Comedian special. I, mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed. I didn't even know Bob Hope. I mean, Rodney, I've heard it. Rodney's, of course. Who else was on that special with you? Mark Pitta ah. 
Kevin Meany, uh, Wayne Cotter, Karen Kilgariff, and I think Margaret Smith was on it too. I'm almost positive. That's really cool. So you got to hang with Bob Hope. That's <laughs> that's kind of neat. Well, you know, what was cool was that, and you know, Phyllis Diller was a guest on it and, um, nice. and Alan Thicke was a guest on it. And I got to know Phyllis Diller through a friend of mine, um, a comedian named Henriette Mantel. She and I did a, our first big comedy TV show was called Six Ladies Laughing. It was a lifetime special that we taped in New York. And Andrea Martin was the celebrity guest host. Nice. And Phyllis Diller happened to watch it and really resonated with Henriette. And they cultivated a friendship which morphed into me meeting her and hanging out at her house. She had a uh, she had a luncheon for a group of female writers and comedians. And we all just sat and she held court and she just talked about her life. She had this big oil painting on an easel of Bob Hope because he was very influential in her career. And she remained very, very good friends with him. Anyway, so that the hanging out part with Bob Hope, he invited all the comics uh, the following day to his house in Toluca Lake. Phyllis Diller showed up and Alan Thicke showed up and, you know, he was a, a big golfer. He had a par three golf hole on his property. And I knew that in advance. So I brought a seven iron with me. We were teeing off. That's really cool. Sometime during the day. And it was just cool. Just like hanging out with him. Yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Paul Provenza, when, he, when I was talking with him, he, he was, I think, very close with Phyllis Diller as well. He, he mm-hmm. had a lot of cool stories. You were on The Aristocrats. Yes, I was. I was. <laughs> yes. With uh, Kathy Ladman and uh, Carrie Snow. So cool. Yeah, it was cool. But Paul, Paul to me had one of the, the all-time greatest celebrity relationship stories I'm, I'm sure he he probably shared it with you when he was working in Vegas. He was opening for Diana Ross. Did he tell you that story? It's, yes, I think so. Yeah, it sounds familiar at least. Or I heard him talk about it somewhere else. You know, it all it all blurs. <laughs> Word got out on the strip to a lot of the other venues that there was this young comic who was really really funny, and on the marquee, his name it was just Diana Ross. So when he came out from the middle from center stage, from the curtain, no one knew that there was even a comedian opening up the show. And he said that it was a little difficult for him to kind of get his footing right out of the gate. So Phyllis Diller came, she wanted to meet him because she had heard about him and he shared his dilemma. And she said to him, come from the side of the stage, come from the area where you have to walk a little bit of a distance. Let the audience take you in before you get to your mark. And you look at the audience and say, and, and I don't know whether she said this to him or maybe he asked her, he wanted to say it, but he said to the audience, I don't know you either. <laughs> and that broke the ice. That's all right. You just need that one, that one second. Exactly. It's, it's all yours. Exactly. You mentioned earlier you wrote a spec script for Ellen, but then later you did work on her second sitcom, The Ellen Show. Yes. Yes. Not the best experience. Oh, God. It was probably my biggest nightmare in show business. Yeah, she uh, she didn't like me. I, I don't know why. I didn't know her during our stand-up days together. I never ran into her. It was just bizarre. And I got the gig. I got the gig, you know, based on spec scripts, you know, that I had written. But um, Carol Liefer, who's a very good friend of mine, she was one of the executive producers. And Mitch Hurwitz, who was her partner on the show, knew me because he was good friends with um, the funny, you know, Jimmy Valley, who was one of the funny boys. So, you know, our, our paths had crossed. But Carol was really the reason why I got the job. I just don't know. She was not nice to me. I mean, not nice to me in such a devious way. I mean, publicly not nice to me. I mean, we would have table reads, which for those who don't know, on the on Monday, no, it was on when, was it Monday? Yeah, it was Monday. After you had handed in your script, you would have the week to go through it and you know do rewrites and stuff. Then on Monday, you would sit at, it was like a big, a, like a, a big long table that kind of went into like a large square. Ellen would greet everybody and say hello to everybody. She would say hello to the person to the right of me, ignore me, and say hello to the person to the left of me. Every table read, and it was really like bizarre. 
And it was so uncomfortable. Was it also uncomfortable to the other people who are witnessing this? I mean, they had to be. I'm right? sure it was. I'm, I mean, I mean, I, I talked to Carol about it and I talked to Mitch about it. I didn't really talk to the other writers about it. But yeah, I mean, everybody witnessed it. I remember I had come up with a story. This is when I totally knew how much she didn't like me. I had come up with a story idea. And usually when you came up with the story, you would go off and write the script. And Mitch came into my office and he said, um, this is exactly what he said. I'm going to give you story credit, but I'm not. He says, I have a feeling this is going to be a difficult script to to write during the week. And it's going to be difficult just because Ellen, you know, she likes something new all the time, even if it works. She just like would throw things out and keep us there till six in the morning a lot. And uh, she had no respect for writers. It was really horrible. He said to me, Ellen, no likey, Sue Kalinsky. <laughs> And I was like, oh, well, that's fun to come to work every day with the star of the show not liking me. But, you know, I, my, con you know, like, you know, my contract was picked up. And then he said, but I'll give you credit. And then the script I wrote, and I'm not, I'm not like tooting my own horn, but the table read. And at that point, you know, the script had gone through many changes, but it was, I got so many compliments and it was so nerve wracking to me because this was the first script that I wrote as a solo writer. And not only that, but I decided to quit smoking right before I went off to write my script because I thought if I quit smoking now under this pressured situation and I pull this off, I will never smoke again. Good thinking. And I never smoked again. Everybody was very complimentary. Her girlfriend at the time was at the table read. Ellen said nothing to me. All the crew, everybody laughing, you know, and her, her girlfriend came over to me and said, wow, that really great, really fun, great script. And it was probably one of the easiest weeks we had. It, it just, everything just ran very smoothly. And then when it was time for my option to be picked up again, Mitch had, you know, said to me, you know, this is, this is probably going to be difficult because it was the front nine and then the back nine. And I had already, I had gotten a job on the Osbournes, Jeff Stilson, who I'm sure you know from standup, Jeff was one of the executive producers of the Osborne and Henriette Mantel, who I mentioned, she got a job as a segment producer and they needed one more segment producer. And Jeff used to come to the Ellen show once a week to punch up scripts. And I confided in him and he knew how unhappy I was there. And so he got me a job on the Osbournes. And so I talked to my boss, you know, Mitch, and I, I said, don't even, don't even think of trying to get my option picked up because I'm miserable here and I'm going to work on a, another show. I took such a pay cut because I was, you know, staffed on a, on a union show. I was working on, you know, a show for that was on MTV and um, I didn't care. I didn't care. When I, when I got to the Osbournes, I had so much fun. I mean, I was, I, I was like, it was like, I was appreciated. I remember saying to uh, some of the people who worked at the Osbournes, because, you know, we, we, I, we were making great money, you know, compared to what people make every week. But in the show business world, we were like on the, on the bottom rung. I said, if I made this amount of money and had this job for the rest of my life at this salary, I would say fine, because it was so much fun. And granted, I had come from such a toxic environment. It was a complete 180. It was the greatest job I've ever had in my life. And I've been chasing that high my entire career. People underappreciate what it, how important it is to be happy with what you do. Yes. And, you know, to have a job in show business, I mean, you're, you're very lucky to be accepted into this world and to make a living, whether it be a comic writer, produce, whatever it is, you know, working, you know, as a crew member, you're, you're so lucky to have that and to go to work every day and it make you, and it make, makes you miserable. It's like, I'm in show business. How could I be miserable? This is terrible. Right. Cause on paper, the Ellen show, and then it, oh, and it turns out the back nine was the last nine, right? So moving on was probably a really great move. Yes. And I don't even, I think it got canceled before they did all of the back nine. Kind of put this in perspective. So you're in a room, like on paper, right? Oh, I'm in a room with Ellen DeGeneres, Jim Gaffigan, right? It wasn't him. They, they weren't in the room oh, with they us but I'm in saying, the but, like, but they're in the show. But, I'm, but, but they're, they're on, on the, the show. show. Jim Gaffigan, yes, Martin yes, Mull, yes. and Cloris Leachman. 
Cloris Leachman. Right. So it's like, this would be a fun environment. I mean, it's just like, you can't think of like three people, right? Those three, that funniest people ever. It's like, oh. I know. So it's, I right, know. So I'm glad you found happiness with the Osbournes. It's an interesting show, right? I've heard you talk about it. It's like, it was real. It was 100% non-scripted. I think later reality became scripted reality. But at this point in the evolution, right, it's, it's all. Yes. The thing that I find most interesting about it is, is like you have Ozzy like in a normal scenario, all of them really, Sharon mm-hmm. too. And it's like, you always have to explain to people like when you, especially when you do stand up, my brother would call me on stage, on stage Jeff. And he would say, oh, I'd love to be friends with on stage Jeff. <laughs> you know? That version. So like just to be mm-hmm. able to see what it's like to be Ozzy when you're not like singing Crazy Trail or Crazy Train or whatever, right? On crazy stage, Train, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, it was interesting. It must have been a like really good insight just for people to like realize, oh, this is this is different. This is what it's like when I'm not experiencing someone who I love the way I love them normally. Yeah. I mean, to to be there and witness them being a family. I mean, the whole idea was to make it this kind of perverse, you know, father knows best kind of show, an actual 50 sitcom in a way. The beauty of it was that they were so gracious and gave us so much access. They trusted us, which was a big, big part of it. And that's a testament to Greg Johnston and uh, Jeff Stilson and, and all of the super dot supervising producers and co-executives. And Sharon was just game. She didn't care. I wake up in the morning and my hair's in 10 different directions and I have no makeup on and this is who I am. And the mundane things, you know, she would vacuum and he would be on the couch and he would lift his legs like your dad would do. You know, I mean, it was just anytime you had Ozzy doing anything, making a milkshake was like, that was like two and a half solid minutes of television that never disappointed, but they loved one another. And that was the reason why the show was so successful. They truly, truly loved one another and access because, you know, from there I worked on newlyweds, which was almost as much fun working on it. Not the time we spent there. I didn't spend a lot of time there. Like with the Osbournes, the first season, I was a segment producer. So I was at the house every time we shot. And then consecutive seasons, I was in post and I ran, I ran post, meaning that I worked with the editors. We put the episodes together. When I worked on newlyweds, I was always in post and I completely ran post. I was the only producer that worked with the editors. And then I worked with the story department who put the, the you know, the scripts together, basically the scripts, it's the foot that was put into like a script form. But I didn't really, I didn't have a relationship with uh, Nick and Jessica. It was a completely different vibe. We weren't allowed to be in certain rooms. Like they didn't, they didn't give us access to their bedroom. It was actually like a little bit of a, a pull to let us in their bedroom when they were packing to go on a trip. It's like they, they just wanted to keep things off television. But we made it work. You you were saying how subsequent shows, you know, became more scripted. There were other shows that never really made it. Like I remember um, Liza Minnelli and her creepy husband, David Guest. I kind of remember that. I don't. <laughs> they started to do their show when we were still doing the Osbournes. I had a friend that that worked on it and that show never I don't even think the show ever aired because they had way too much control and they didn't want to give them access. You can't do a docu follow show without letting us be, you know, a a real fly on the wall in your life. We certainly can't have a successful show if you're going to discount everything and say no to everything because you don't want to be seen in that light. It's, you know, the Osbournes were just an open book. They let us see everything, all the flaws. And then, you know, and look, Sharon, you know, she got cancer and we shot that season, you know, where she was going through chemo. And, you know, I mean, there were serious moments, but, you know, the comedy always prevailed. That was what was going on. And she was all for it. She, you know, she wanted the cameras there. It was successful because of who they were. I understand it's not scripted, but how did they get into the mindset of being filmed that much and kind of not get caught up in the fact of understanding when I'm talking, this is being recorded and can be played back. So I have to almost, I have to watch what I say maybe, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. Well, they never, they ne- but they never watched what they said. That was the beauty. <laughs> I know, but it's, I know, but is all right. So like, there wasn't like a lot that you had to like cut and they never said, don't, cut? don't do this. Don't use that. Cause there's a lot of footage I'm no. sure you never use, but like. It was footage. Yeah. There was footage we didn't use. And a lot of it was, you know, it didn't 
drive the story or it was too much. I'm like, and that was, you know, the days where you shot so much footage, you had so much footage to work with. It was kind of the opposite of the way they do it now. Back then you shot and then you created the episode because you you weren't really planning a lot of stuff. Like the things that were planned were, oh, you know, a dog trainer is going to come over. We knew that that was going to happen, but you didn't know what was going to happen once the dog trainer came over. So you did know, you know, like you knew Ozzy was going to the dentist, but you didn't know what was going to happen when you got there. Jeff Stilson figured out for every 500 minute shot, we used one minute. That's how much footage we shot. It was just, so you were a slave to the footage, which some people might say, oh God, that must've been so difficult. It wasn't because the subjects were so good. They never failed to give us great footage ever. Even with newlyweds, like I remember, and this was actually just for a pure sense of reality, one of my favorite moments, Jessica had been away touring. And while she was gone, Nick and his brother, who were, you know, the blue collar kind of bumblers in some way, they did a bunch of redecorating while she was gone. And they had newly moved into the house. So there were things like Nick hung up pictures. He kind of put his office together. And he was so excited for when she came home because he thought that she would be so happy with what he did. And she she had, I mean, they were so different, you know. She came from a family where, and I don't think they were really rich, and Nick certainly didn't come from a family that had money. So he, you know, he would fix things himself, you know. He was, that, that's kind of the way he grew up. And when she wanted to buy like $800 designer sheets, he was like, are you insane? He just, it, was, it wasn't his world. So she comes home, she's very critical of what he did. They grabbed a beer and you can tell there was so much tension between them. And they sat outside sipping a beer on their patio. She was just pissy. And he called her a spoiled brat. And she's like, I'm not a brat. And he said, yes, you are. And she made some comment like, I'll make it up to you in the bedroom or something like that. And he looked at her and he said, I want to raise. And we're watching this footage and we're like, whoa, God, what does that mean? I want to raise. It's like, does uh, she not get blowjobs? I mean, what is it? What is what is I want to raise, you know? But it was such a real moment between two married people who were obviously, there were cracks in the marriage. You know, it was like scenes from a marriage, really. It was moments like that, that made me love so much what I did for a living because it was really true. That's awesome. And then, you know, later on, I got jobs where there was a writer's room on a reality show. And that made me want to throw up in my mouth. One other thing. I I've, I saw that you were the original guest host. Or you were the original host of Short Attention Span Theater. It was me. It was a revolving cast. There were three of us. Wally Collins, myself, can't believe I can't remember the other guy's name. It's driving me crazy. There were three of us. This was a disappointing thing for me. I mean, I had a blast doing it. They wanted to just have two people do it. And Jon Stewart was their choice. And then they wanted to recast me or they wanted me to, I had to re-audition for my job. It was so humiliating. I remember calling up John because I was friends with John and I said, I need for you because we were friends and we had a great chemistry. I said, and they didn't, they didn't let me audition with him. I auditioned with someone who wrote on the, uh, who wrote uh, something on the net. What was it called? I mean, it was, it was downtown productions. It, it was, it was a part of HBO. This is originally before it became Comedy Central, right? Before it became Comedy Central. Yeah. They had me audition with someone who wasn't even a comic and it was awkward. And I was just, so I called up John and I said, tell them how badly you want me to be your co-host. And uh, it didn't matter. They had some, they had somebody else in mind, Patty Rossborough, who was, who was fun and great. And she was a friend, but that was uh, that was a real disappointment for me to not do it with John, because when I did it, it wasn't in a lot of people's homes. And then it became a, a nationwide show. So a lot of people didn't even get to see me do it. It, it was it was more of a talk soupy type of thing when I did it. All right. Well, we, we can't end on that bummer. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were on Curb. You were on Curb Your Enthusiasm. That was the coolest. That I was I was actually working on, I think I was working on Newlyweds at the time. And the office 
where Larry, that's where he worked, but that's where they, that's, yeah, that's where they auditioned people I could walk to from, from where our offices were. And it was actually where Sex in the City, where I wrote on Sex in the City. So it had kind of a good luck kind of a vibe to it. And when I got the audition, I mean, I wasn't even going out for anything. I was I was producing and writing. And I, I just thought, I'm not going to be in anything. But the woman who cast it knew me from my stand-up. When I went in and auditioned, you know, they give you like a little, um, it looked like a, um, a fortune cookie fortune. And it just kind of gives you a little bit of the gist of the scene. And my scene was with Larry. And all I wanted to do was not suck because it was all improv. And I knew Larry. I knew Jeff Garland. I knew Susie, you know, Susie Essman. Susie wasn't at the audition. Jeff was at the audition. Cheryl was at the audition and Larry. And I hadn't seen Larry in in some time. And I just, I, I didn't want word to get out that, oh God, Kalinske, like, ate it at the audition. I walk in and Larry, you know, gave me a big hug. He saw that I was wearing a wedding ring. He was like, so what's going on? Well, you got married. How how do I not know you got married? Well, this is how I find out you got married. And we, you know, we talked a little bit and I had a great, great audition and I got the part. And I remember going back to work and finding out that I got it. And it was like the coolest thing in the world. And I'll tell you what the kicker was. Ellen DeGeneres, this was her favorite show. (laughs) And she had not been on it. And there was an episode with Rosie O'Donnell that took place in LA. And when you think about it, Rosie's kind of like speaks for the for for the gay women in New York. And Ellen is kind of like the LA gay actress. Larry had talked to Carol Leifer about wanting to have Ellen on the show. And Carol said that she was really, really mean to Sue Kalinsky. And Larry said, what? You're kidding. She was mean to Sue Kalinsky? And he booked Rosie instead. Boom. And that is what is called karma, ladies and gentlemen, right there. Yes. Yes. So that was, uh, so that was very, very cool. So it was a duel. It was a duel for me, but it, was, uh, it meant so much to be on that show and that Larry put me on the show. And, and, and he, he's a very gracious guy. And, and I remember during rehearsals in between takes, he would, he'd look, he looked at me one day and he said, um, I think I used everybody. I think I, uh, I think I used everybody. It meant so much to him that he used all the comics that he came up with. That was what he wanted to do. He wanted to be able to, to do that for people. And that was, that was just icing on the cake to hear that him say that. That's one. It's wonderful when you hear people kind of help the, help others that, they were with and all that kind of stuff. That's a great story. Yeah. That is a great story yeah. in many, many ways. So many great stories. So, so many. I, I can't thank you enough for hanging out with me. This was so fun. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I, you know, when I, when I heard your, when I first heard your podcast, I was like, this is a blast. I mean, I, I love what you do. I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours. So I, I, it's a treat for me to, to be on. I'm, I'm really glad that you had me. Oh, that is, thank you. I'm a fan of yours. You're a fan of mine. This is, now we're best <laughs> friends. This is great. This is great. Think, how can people keep up with you like on the socials? I'm on Twitter. I'd hardly ever do anything on Twitter. I post on Facebook. The only way to, you know, follow me probably is to listen to the podcast is the Culture Pop podcast, which you can hear on however you listen to your podcast. Yes. Um, Everyone check that out. So has great guests. So very cool. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again. This was a pleasure. Thank you. And I'll have to thank Paul Lander yes. for uh, putting the two of us together on this blind podcast date. Thank you, Paul. All right. How amazing was Sue Kalinsky? Go run and check out her podcast. The Culture Pop Podcast is super cool. She's got great guests. I know you're going to love it. I do. And don't you just want to break out your own JFK imitation? That's not what people can do for you, but how you can do it. I mean, not too good. Well, anyway, go check out the Von Meter First Family album. You can find it online. You will not be disappointed. Well, with the amazing Sue Kalinsky interview over, it can mean only one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free, always free, never costs a penny app at the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. Hit kind of a high note there, huh? I'm going to leave that in. 
All right, today's hashtag comes to us from Fresh Coast Tags, my buddy Mark. Hashtag take a show camping, of course, inspired by Sue and my conversation and love for summer camp. Take a show camping, the ultimate mashup hashtag game. Take a show, a TV show, some kind of camping word, mash them together. Hilarity ensues. All right. Here's some hashtag take a show camping tweets. Park and Mindy. Last Coleman standing. Get it? This is how you mash up shows and camping. Hashtag take a show camping. Trees company. Two and a half tents. Buffy the campfire slayer. The Mary Tyler s'mores show. The Gill s'more girls. Welcome back Pat Cotter. The West winging it. Tense and sensibility. These hashtag take a show camping tweets are the tweetiest. Kids in the mess hall. And our final hashtag take a show camping tweet. Sex away from the city. Oh, oh, there we go. All right. Losing my voice a little bit. If you got this far, I'm going to admit it to you. That's why my voice is going in and out sometimes. But here we are. All right. That was awesome. Hashtag take a show camping tweets. All those tweets will be retweeted at Jeff DeWaskin show on Twitter. Show them some love, like them, retweet them, tell them you heard them on classic conversations. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over can only mean one thing. Episode 136 has come to an end. Can you believe it? Where does the time go? It just flies by. But here we are. Special thanks to my amazing guest, Sue Kalinske. And of course, thanks to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.